Good morning. Have you ever uh, stopped to think about what makes a nation a nation? And uh, there's commonly identified four four marks that distinguish or make something into a nation. And what's needed would be a, a territory, a defined area of land, a population. You need people. Sovereignty, you need authority over that land and that people. And you need government, a government to exercise that sovereignty. So territory, population, sovereignty, and government. And uh, it's a neat little website, study.com, has a a video that uh, describes those characteristics and makes this statement. It says, a nation is a system of organization in which people with a common identity live inside a country with firm borders and a single government. And we don't often think about it, but the nation that we identify with has a profound impact upon our life. And usually it's just the nation that we are are born in. But how we identify ourselves, uh, American, Canadian, Brazilian, South African, is based upon that nation that we come from. What language we speak, what laws we follow, the history that we read and, and look at, the holidays that we celebrate, all of that is rooted and based upon the nation that we associate with. Additionally, we can also ask, what is it that keeps a nation a nation? Now, if that's what forms a nation, territory, people, sovereignty, and then government, what keeps a nation as a nation? What is necessary? Again, that website defines it as physical boundaries, government, and the fact that the people believe they are connected to each other. That's what is necessary to hold a nation together. Which then leads us to a question. If that's what what holds a a physical, earthly nation together, those are the, the three prerequisites. Physical boundaries, government, and an interconnectedness of a people. Are those same things true of God's kingdom? Those same things evident. Now there will one day be a literal physical kingdom of God on the earth in the future. Where Christ will rule and reign and the saints will get to rule and reign with him. Amen. But right now, as we await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, His kingdom is invisible. It's spiritual. That is the the type of kingdom blessings that we experience right now. So during this church age, when the kingdom of God is invisible and its citizens come, just as we sang, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, how is this kingdom to be marked off from the rest of the world? We don't have physical boundaries. How are we to be identified and held together? Well, you remember those three things, government, boundaries, and and interconnectedness. What we see is that the church is now the local government for kingdom citizens. Baptism is what marks off the, the boundaries, the territory within human hearts, and communion is what solidifies and encourages that interconnectedness of the people of that invisible kingdom. And baptism and communion were given as signs of the new covenant. As we just read in Genesis, uh, the signs or the covenants in the Old Testament each had a a sign, a reminder that corresponded to it. Uh, With uh, the covenant with Noah, what was the sign? Rainbow. You can talk to me, that's okay. Uh, The the covenant with uh, Israel and, and Moses, the sign of the covenant was the Sabbath. Sign of the covenant with Abraham, circumcision. Signs of the new covenant, which we participate in, are baptism and communion. That is how the invisible kingdom of God is marked off during the church age. Why is all of this important? Why are we here talking about these two signs of the covenant? Well, this is where you could say that the rubber meets the road. This is where our, our theology, our doctrine of the church, we can call it our ecclesiology, This is where the rubber meets the road concerning how we shepherd people, how we encourage disciples of Christ to now follow Jesus 
and be distinct from the world. Every disciple of Christ should understand the importance of both baptism and communion to their spiritual life. And this is really important for Christian parents. As Christian parents, you you begin to wonder and ask, when should my kids, when should I encourage them to participate in communion? When should I encourage them to be baptized? It immediately has big shepherding implications and parenting implications. But you might also be asking, why this message right now? Well, this is the first Sunday of the month, and the first Sunday of the month is when we generally celebrate communion, that ongoing representation of our covenant with Christ. And for those of you who are here, you may or may not have noticed that in January when we had our communion service, that first Sunday of the month, now, I explained who should partake of the bread and the cup, and I, I added something in there without necessarily clarifying it as I should have. What I, what I said was that, that communion was for those who had been baptized, uh, placed their faith in Christ, and had been baptized. Uh, and uh, I realized that my, my statement caught uh, some people by surprise, because I didn't go into greater detail of it. It was swept up by the, that clock in the back there. Uh, and so I didn't go into as much detail as I should have about that adjustment uh, and that uh, requirement of baptism for participation in the Lord's table. And uh, it's funny, this morning in our equipping hour class, we had uh, a discussion on confession uh, and the seven A's of confession. And the first uh, A of confession is that we address everybody who's involved. And so if I stand up here and create confusion uh, in what I say, who do I need to come back to and address that with? Everybody. So uh, I am sorry for the confusion that I created and the, and the hurt that resulted from that. And I would ask for you to forgive me. Will you forgive me for that? Thank you. Uh, I, I appreciate uh, that. And I need your forgiveness. Uh, as, a, as a leader, I need to speak clearly and with clarity. It's like James says something about uh, let not many of you become teachers because of, uh, because of that very thing. But, uh, but I wanted to, uh, to address this topic because I feel it's important just in, in the shepherding and life of our church and the shepherding and life uh, of our families as we are disciples of Christ who want to follow him these two Christian ordinances uh, the ordinances of the church baptism and communion they uh, help to nurture and encourage our faith and they are pictures of the gospel and what I want to argue this morning is that why should we view these two ordinances as being inseparable uh, that they are connected. We often don't think of the interconnectedness of these two ordinances. And in seeking to answer that question, I'd like to, to look at each of them and how they relate to one another. But first, I have to make some qualifications. Okay, we're, we're going to speak about these two ordinances. But first, I have to make it abundantly clear. Neither one of them saves you. Okay, can you say that with me? Neither one of them saves you. Okay, baptism does not save you. And participation in the Lord's table does not save you. There are some uh, Protestant denominations, and most commonly understood also the, the Roman Catholic Church, that teach something called baptismal regeneration. That simply the act of being baptized saves an individual. Uh, and I would argue against that on two counts. Number one, the clear teaching of the New Testament says that we are not justified by works or actions. We are justified by faith. There's nothing that we can look to that we've done in the past to, to validate that we, have, that we are a genuine believer. Whether that's baptism, whether that's a, 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 con, a prayer of confession, we don't look to those acts as what saves us. We look to our faith and then the assurance that comes from that. God's Word always points us to do we believe, and if we believe, we have assurance. Romans 3.28 says that for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, even, uh, or but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one, and that's an exact number, no one will be justified. And in Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one 
may boast. So that's first and foremost the clear teaching of Scripture. But secondly, we have examples in Scripture. There are people in Scripture who were never baptized and yet assured of their salvation. Most famously, the thief on the cross. There were two men who were crucified alongside of Jesus. And they both mock him for a time. And then one of them realizes, wait, maybe we shouldn't be mocking him because he's innocent. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus assures him that he will be with him in heaven, even though he's not baptized. The Roman soldiers weren't going to take him off of the cross and baptize him and then put him back up there. So we have those in Scripture who have never been baptized and are saved. And we also see the opposite. We see those in Scripture who are baptized And then it's made clear that they are not genuine believers. We see this most easily in Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8. He's he's baptized with a a group of uh, people who uh, profess faith in Christ. Uh, They baptize them all. And then later on, uh, the apostles begin to perform miracles and uh, and signs. And, And Simon the Magician comes up and says, hey, I want to be able to do that. In fact, I'll pay you money if you give me the power to do that. And Peter rebukes him. You can't buy the Spirit of God with money. He says, repent. And, and Simon just says, well, can you just pray for me? That, that's not repentance. So here you have somebody who was baptized, clearly doesn't know Christ in a saving way. So we see examples on both sides that, that baptism does not save. What does save? I want to make this clear as well. Justification, salvation, being declared righteous in the eyes of God is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And our faith in Christ alone puts us into what we can call the invisible church. That invisible kingdom of God that we can't see, that's not immediately marked off for us. What God has given to us then to mark off the invisible church are baptism and communion that all those who are justified by faith now participate in these and it helps to identify who's following christ and who is not those are my my clarifications that i wanted to begin with and then uh, i wanted to first look at baptism Uh, baptism the beginning of identification with christ and his church now i have a a slide a long definition i was going to try and get it into your uh Uh, bulletins, but I'm not sure if we got in there. If we can have the the slide, I want to read this. So if baptism does not save us, then what role does it play in the Christian life? What does it do for us? There's a a great definition by a pastor and theologian named Bobby uh, Jameson. He says, baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water. And a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting the believer to the church and marking him or her off from the world. So as you look at that definition, baptism communicates that a church is accepting an individual's profession of faith. Right? Saying, hey, this person's confession of faith, they understand the gospel and now they want to follow Christ and we want to encourage them and recognize that. And we believe that baptism is by immersion and it's performed on the basis of faith. Now, there's much bigger discussion involved in that, but I would just summarize it. And every, every time you see baptism in the Bible, what's taking place? They're, they're dunking people. Jesus wasn't sprinkled. He was immersed uh, all the way down, all the way up. And that is what we are called to follow in. So baptism communicates something from a church. It also communicates what an individual is declaring. That they are now publicly identifying they are with Jesus. And baptism serves to unite that new believer with the existing body of believers in a local church. And with the church with a capital C. The ultimate church of Christ. The invisible church. And baptism serves to mark off disciples as citizens of that future heavenly kingdom that belongs to Christ. So that's a great definition that I wanted to, to put out there. But also, seeing baptism, it is a command in Scripture. It is a part of discipleship. If you, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, a passage that you are well familiar with. Matthew 28, the last three verses, verses 18, 19, and 20. 
Just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he, he gathers his disciples and he gives them what is known as the Great Commission. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's interesting there, for those who are already believers, the Great Commission begins with what action? Us going. But for those whom we we go to and share the gospel with, when they believe, what's the first step in following Jesus that we see here? Baptism. We are to go make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. So here you have discipleship beginning with baptism. And baptism is intended to be one of the first acts of obedience that a believer makes after they place their faith in Christ. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, first sermon on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved and they are all baptized. It's it's immediate. Later on in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch says, hey, there's water here. Can I be baptized? And Philip says, absolutely. Later on, the Philippian jailer, Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in jail, singing hymns, praising the Lord at midnight. Earthquake opens up the, the jail. They could have escaped. The Philippian jailer comes out. He's ready to commit suicide because he knows if those prisoners escape, he's done for. And Paul says, wait, before you do that, we're still here. And the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? He says, well, look to Christ. He looks to Christ and then he's immediately baptized. Baptism is intended to be one of the first acts of obedience. And interestingly, Scripture doesn't have a a category for unbaptized believers. I don't necessarily see that anywhere in Scripture. Now, I'm not saying that category doesn't exist. I understand that is a reality. But it should be a reality that only happens for a short period of time in between our faith and encouraging somebody into those initial steps of discipleship, the first one being baptism. So baptism is a command in Scripture, and baptism is also a picture of salvation in Scripture. If we turn over to to Romans chapter 6, what we see in baptism is a a visible illustration, a visible manifestation of the believer's union with Christ. Now, what, what, think about what happens in baptism. You're standing there with somebody, and they go down underneath the water. They are submerged, and that submersion underneath the water is them identifying with the death of Christ. That they, Because they've been united with Christ in faith, they have died with Christ. Which means their old self is no longer there. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live. That's what that submersion demonstrates. And then we don't keep them there and leave them there. What do we do? We bring them back up. They, they were dead and now they have been raised to newness of life, even as Jesus was raised from the dead. That is what baptism is, is intended to portray. And it's, that's theologically significant. If you look at me, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So what does he mean that we've died to sin? Well, he's pointing to baptism. And baptism is, a, again, a visible manifestation of what has taken place spiritually and invisibly. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we had been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Baptism is a a declaration of our faith and an illustration that we will one day be raised from the dead, even as Christ was. And what an assurance that is. 
So the act of baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. And the waters of baptism are a picture of our spiritual cleansing from sin. Psalm 51, 2 says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And Titus 3, 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We see this concept and understanding that when we are cleansed, when our sins have been paid for through faith in Christ, we have been washed away. And that is what the waters of baptism represent. We are now clean. Though we were stained before, we have been washed by the blood of Christ. So what we could say then is that baptism is a, is a symbolic entry point. It's a, it's a doorway into the church that we are all called to walk through. And the world around us is taking this, this biblical concept. Uh, they, they have a secular name for it, kind of the idea of a rite of passage. There's many uh, rites of passage throughout uh, the, the world in different cultures and in, in different uh, times uh, and in different ways. When I was in high school in Los Angeles, many of my, my friends were uh, involved with gangs. Lived in a certain part of uh, town and gangs have their own forms of initiation. Realize that? They've taken a biblical concept... Uh, and, and morphed it and used it for their own end. And usually, in a gang initiation, uh, somebody who, who's new is attacked all at once simultaneously by every other member of the gang. And if you survive that initial beatdown, you're, you're brought in and then embraced. Other cultures have rites of passage. And commonly now, the modern-day LGBTQ community has informally established kind of these coming out videos, publishing them online as a, a rite of passage to be acknowledged and accepted in to their community. These rites of passage are not in and of themselves wicked, but they all mirror biblical truth, biblical signs that point to greater realities. And every rite of passage is a public declaration of who you are now aligning with. Who you are identifying with. Say, I'm with this group now. That's the function that they serve. If that is what baptism is, the next question is, who then should be baptized? And the answer is simple. All those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. All who have believed in Jesus for salvation should be baptized. But there's something else that goes along with it. True, true faith in Christ should be accompanied by a willingness to stand for him. A willingness to publicly identify with him. See, we can't be ashamed of him and follow him at the same time. It's a difficult thing to do, right? There was uh, maybe times in your past when you were a teenager and your parents were taking you somewhere. And what might you have asked them to do? Drop me off around the block. Don't let anybody see you. Right? So in that moment, you were not loving your parents and proud of them. You were ashamed. I can't be seen with my mom. Oftentimes, that's the same thing that we want to do with Christ. We want to leave him a couple blocks away so that our, our neighbors, our friends, our family, our coworkers don't see that we are identifying with him. But that's not what Christ calls us to. If you, if you turn over to Luke chapter 9, Christ calls us to discipleship. Not a, not a mere confession of faith, not just praying a prayer. What he calls us to is to follow him. If you look with me, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words 
of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's where baptism is, is important. Are you willing to stand for Christ? Are you willing to publicly declare to others that you're with and aligning with Christ? This is what baptism does and what it proclaims. What's amazing is that our, our culture is moving in kind of the opposite direction. They're constantly encouraging us that our faith is to be a personal and private matter. Right? That's just for you. But Christ calls us to exactly the opposite. Right? We, we are to, to proclaim Christ. We are to publicly identify with him. It's not just a, a personal faith uh, that's only applicable to you when you're inside the walls of this building. That's what they want to confine it to. That's just for your house and for your church. No, Christ calls us to discipleship where uh, his lordship impacts every area of our lives. And we follow him and submit to him in all things. So what's, what's the big takeaway of all of this? And baptism isn't, isn't an optional part of discipleship. It's, it's the first steps. It's a public declaration that you are now with Jesus. You ever see those, those shirts that say, I'm with, and it has, you know, it has the arrow. Sometimes it says, I'm with stupid. Uh, we don't want to do that. But, but baptism is saying, hey, I'm with Jesus. And I will be with him from this point forward. And many of us are, are quick to identify with a particular brand of clothing or a favorite sports team, especially if your team is playing this afternoon. You're quick to identify with a given team, but we may be much, much slower to identify with Jesus. So my dear brothers and sisters, this cannot be. It must not be. We have to stand for Christ. Publicly. Boldly. That is what we are called to do. And may we all grow in our willingness to do that. Even if we've already been baptized, we still need to grow in that area. Acts chapter 5, I love the apostles. They pray for boldness, and then what does the Lord give them? Boldness. To go out and share the gospel. Baptism is the beginning point of our public identification with Christ. And then, secondly, communion is that the ongoing identification with Christ and His church. Baptism is the entry point Communion is an ongoing acknowledgement of that. And again, I have a, a two-point definition here. It's lengthy from that same pastor. The church's act of communing with Christ and each other and of commemorating Christ's death by partaking of bread and wine and a believer's act of receiving Christ's benefits and renewing his commitment to Christ and his people, thereby making the church one body and marking it off from the world. The beauty of communion is that we partake of it as a church body, together. And it is a, a demonstration of our oneness with Christ and our unity as a church body. That is what it is intended to communicate. And for the individual believer, it's like a, a renewal of our covenant with Christ. Like married couples have a renewal of their vows later on in life. That, that is what communion is intended to be. A constant reminder of our relationship with Christ. And that covenant relationship was ratified, in essence, at baptism. And participation in communion serves to mark off the believer as one who is in a continuing relationship with Christ and His church. You know, if, if you turn over to Luke chapter 22, we see that that the celebration and participation in the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table Communion, I'll use those terms to all refer to the same thing. That it is a command. You look at Luke chapter 22, verse 20. Sorry, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. And then he, that last statement, do this, that's a command. We are to do this. It's again not optional. And it is a memorial. 
We do this in remembrance of Christ. And, and when we come to the Lord's table and we are remembering Christ, we're remembering three things. Okay? His past sacrifice, what he has done for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. We remember that. Secondly, we are presently celebrating our fellowship with him. That we have been united with him. Even as baptism pictured that, we are celebrating that every time we come and partake of communion together. Our present fellowship with him. And we anticipate his return in the future. So as we come to the Lord's table, we're remembering past, present, and then looking to the future. Those are important things to keep in mind as we go to the table. It is a command. It is a memorial. And then it is... If you turn over with me to 1 Corinthians, I know we're, we're bouncing around a little bit, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to say this is something that we don't often think of. That, that communion is a participation in Christ. What I mean by that is that the communion elements, as I've said, are intended to remind us of Jesus. We're to do this in remembrance of him. But there's also a spiritual significance when we partake of these elements. And what I'm not saying is that the, the, the cup and the bread literally turn into the body and the blood of Christ. I'm not saying that. That's a Roman Catholic view. I'm not saying that Christ is in, around, and, and with the elements, which is another view. What I'm saying is that when we gather together to participate in this ordinance, Christ is here with us in a special way. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10... Verse 16. Is the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There's a significance to that. We are participating in what he has accomplished on our behalf when we do this. And the reason that we see this special significance is he's going to make a contrast here. You say, hey, we participate in Christ here. But if you, if you look down just a little bit uh, in that same paragraph, verse 20 says, he's going to make a contrast of, hey, there's a special significance when we participate in the Lord's table. And there's the same way that there's a significance to when pagans offer sacrifices to God. But they don't do it to God, verse 20. Now, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. He says, hey, if you go and participate in that, you are participating with demons in the same way that, hey, when we come and participate in the Lord's table, you are participating in it with Christ. And Christ himself alluded to this in John chapter 6, which we'll, we'll get there. And he's a major stumbling block for those who were following him at the time. He says, yeah, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Really talking about faith in him, but we'll get we'll get there. So it is a participation in Christ, and then lastly, it is a participation with the church. We turn the page over there in First Corinthians. Look at chapter eleven. As, as I mentioned, this ordinance is intended to communicate that we are united together as a church, and if that's the goal, Paul rebukes the the Corinthians. Because they were gathering together and not using the Lord's table in that way. They're actually celebrating factions and disunity at, at the very ordinance that's supposed to acknowledge the unity of the church. Verse 17 in 1 Corinthians 11, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. They were contradicting the very purpose of what had been entrusted to them by Christ. It's to acknowledge the unity of the church. And because it is a participation with the church and with Christ, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, that there's also uh, a, a seriousness to it. it it's a joyful celebration of what Christ has done for us in the past. But there's also an element that we need to be aware of and we need to, to rightly approach the Lord's table. Verse 27, Whoever therefore eats 
the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We are called to examine our hearts prior to partaking of the Lord's table. So if communion is in all of those things, if it's a command, if it's a memorial, if it's a, uh, a remembrance and a participation of Christ and an acknowledgement that we are united as a church body, we should then ask an obvious question. This is where we bring our theology down to the practical level. Who then should participate in communion? Who should partake of the Lord's table? And this is not a new question. It's one that has been argued about over the course of church history. What's commonly known as, how do we fence the table? Who should, who should participate? Now, there's not going to be a literal fence up here. We're not going to have gates or anything like that. And, uh, and the way I want to explain this also, I'm not going to use my football skills to tackle anybody uh, who comes up and like, oh, he shouldn't be doing this. Or I'm not going to do that. And we don't want to do that. But I want uh, you to know. For you to understand, to be able to shepherd your own heart, to be able to shepherd your children and your families. This is my responsibility, is to shepherd you as our church. Throughout church history, there's been a big discussion. How do we fence the table? Should it be an open table? Should it be open and available to anybody who professes to be a Christian? Or should it be a closed table? Should it only be available to members of a local church? The big discussion. It's a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians in American history, maybe the greatest Puritan theologian. And he was fired from his church over the Lord's Supper. They let him go. He'd been there for 23 years. He started at his church. He was co-pastor with his grandfather, a man named Solomon Stoddard. And he started there in 1727. And one of the things that he had stepped into, what his grandfather had allowed, was an open table. Uh, And so open that even people who had never professed Christ could come and participate. That's how open it was. And two years after Jonathan Edwards began his co-pastorship with his grandfather, his grandfather passed away. Here he is, two years into this ministry, and now he, he has this, I guess, practical application within his church that he, over time, becomes deeply convicted by. As he sees the way that it's being practiced, as he sees uh, those who are clearly not following Christ coming in and partaking of the Lord's table, indicating that they are a part, that they are following Christ, and it's clear that they are not. So over time, tensions mounted, and they began to have conflict with some key families in the church. And all of this came to a head when he, when he refused to let a woman partake of communion because she had never professed faith in Christ. He says, hey, you know what? This is not for you. Now, he had his own pastoral issues. He was a very non-sociable guy, uh, and he didn't handle things well. Very interesting. But he wouldn't allow her to participate in communion. And... In doing that, his actions overturned everything that had been taught in the church for many, many years. And it ultimately led to the congregation taking a vote. And 90% of them voted to let him go. 90%. What's interesting is that even though 90% wanted to let him go, he was okay with that. Because of his convictions from God's word. He had already offered at that point in time to resign. Say, hey... I'll step out of the way if, you're, if we're going to continue to do this. Also, ironically, they, they voted him out, and then they asked him to fill their pulpit for the next 15 months uh, to continue to come and, and preach. Uh, so, Larry, I can't imagine how awkward those would have been. Uh, but uh, ultimately, Jonathan Edwards died prematurely just seven years later. Uh, and his views in terms of a, that closed table, uh, have become widely accepted. And the views of his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, that just opened the table up to anybody, have slowly faded out. 
And while Edwards believed in a closed table, meaning that only members of his congregation were allowed to partake of communion, at ABF, uh, we, we don't necessarily hold to an open or a closed. We could say we hold to a close, uh, a close table. Uh, and what we want to explain that as is those, uh, those who have placed their faith in Christ and have been baptized in a gospel-proclaiming church can participate in communion with us here. And the reason that we want to do that, rather than just saying, hey, it's closed, only members of this church can participate, is we have to hold two things in tension here. Number one, as a church, as pastors, as elders, we have a responsibility to make sure that these, this ordinance, the, the, these elements are partaken of in a worthy fashion. That's a command in Scripture that we read in 1 Corinthians 11. But also, so we, so we need to be able to evaluate people's professions of faith. But then on the other hand, we also know that there is a church beyond these walls. We are not the only gospel-proclaiming church. We are not the only ones to the keys of the kingdom. There are many, 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 many others who have discipled and brought people to faith. So what we want to do is just call for those who have been baptized and place their faith in Christ to partake of communion with us. And this is intended to, again, help our, ourselves know whether or not we should take it. And, again, to help shepherd this next generation within the church. What are we encouraging them to? Makes helps us to get things in order, right? Partake of communion. Oh, wait, you have to place your faith in Christ. Oh, wait, no, you have to get baptized. No, believe in Christ and you shall be saved and be baptized. And then regularly participate in communion. That's what we see is called for in the New Testament. And this helps all of us begin to evaluate how we approach the Lord's table. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a joyful celebration, but also a time of introspection to examine our hearts. So how, do we, how do we tie all of this together? How do we see this relationship? Well, both of these ordinances are church-revealing activities. They mark off who is in the church who is following Christ. You could say that baptism is the doorway into the house and communion is the family meal. Ongoing. Regular. Both of them are subjective affirmations of faith, meaning we can get those things wrong. As, as a church, again, we saw it in, in the New Testament, Acts chapter 8. The apostles baptized Simon thinking that he made a clear profession of faith and that he was a believer and then time revealed what? That he wasn't. So these are subjective things that we can get wrong because we are human. But they are subjective affirmations of faith. And again, what I said earlier, neither of them save you. So don't look to either of them as an indication that you are saved. And if we think back to what I said earlier, that what holds a nation together? Physical boundaries, government, and People that believe in an interconnectedness. That, that is what, if those things begin to go, the nation goes. And if we just look at our nation at this point in time in history, what do we begin to see? Which of those is beginning to fray apart? Do we see ourselves as Americans or do we see ourselves as something else? We already are seeing and experiencing that in our nation. The loss of that interconnectedness. But may that never happen in the church. And God gave us something to maintain the unity and the interconnectedness of the local church. And that is community. He gave us baptism as the, the, the border, the boundary to clearly mark out who is in and who is out. And again, baptism doesn't save you. Faith saves you. Baptism marks you with the visible church. And we are to participate in these ordinances until our Lord returns. And the Lord uses this to, to constantly bring the gospel back to our hearts and our minds. To constantly put uh, this illustration of what happens at salvation. Every time someone's baptized, seeing our union with Christ. Every time we partake of communion, as we are about to get ready to do now. And if the ushers will come forward and begin to pass those elements out. Every time we... We partake of this table together. 
It is a reminder of these things. And so if, if you are here this morning and you have not placed your faith in Christ, that is the first thing I would encourage you to do. Let these elements pass you by, but look to Jesus in faith. If you're here this morning and you've placed your faith in Christ, but you have not yet been baptized, praise the Lord that you have looked to Christ in faith. But again, please allow these elements to pass you by. We would encourage you, call you to be baptized in obedience to Christ's command. If you are here this morning and you have already placed your faith in Christ and have been baptized, I'd I'd ask you, as the elements are being passed out, as uh, Greg plays behind me, I would encourage you now to reflect upon your baptism. Reflect upon this table that we are about to celebrate and partake of. Think about what it means, what it has meant to you in your life, how the Lord has redeemed and transformed you. Think about that now as we prepare our hearts to remember Christ's death. As you were reflecting on your own baptism, it brought good memories to mind. At that time when you, you wanted to make that declaration, that I am now following Jesus. I once was not. Thank you. But now I am. You were willing to, to make that profession, to make that stand. Before we, we celebrate these elements together. I wanted to to draw your attention to Ezekiel. What does Ezekiel have to do with communion? Well, it has everything to do with communion. Because what we're going to read here in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27, this is the new covenant. This is what God promises that he will do for Israel. These are the promises that the church has been brought into. We will receive these blessings. Verse 25 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the promise of the new covenant. That God will work in our hearts to transform us, to give us a new heart. He'll transform our our desires, our nature, our choices. That's the beauty and the truth of the gospel. And as we've, we've seen, salvation in and of itself does not, co- not come through baptism, does not come through partaking of these elements. It comes through faith in Christ. And it's a free gift for us. But every time we partake of these elements, what do we remember? That though that gift is free for us, it costs Jesus everything. Everything. This bread that, this bread that we partake of reminds us that his body was broken on our behalf. And without that breaking of his body, we don't have these promises. We don't have the spirit dwelling in us and working through us. So as we partake of this bread together, let us remember the body of Christ. And as we partake of the cup, May we praise Jesus for the blood that he shed so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be washed, forgiven of all of our sins. It cost him dearly to give us that free gift. But let's remember it now.
Please pray with me. Lord of all creation, we come to you with a desire to praise you and thank you for the grace and the mercy that you have bestowed upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that even though our sins are innumerable, even though the, the thoughts of our heart are always and only evil continually, we are the same as we were, as mankind was before the flood. Yet, Lord, we thank you for your grace. Your grace is greater than our sin. And we praise you and thank you for that. Lord Jesus, we praise you for enduring on our behalf the cross. For enduring not only the, the abuse of man, but the wrath of God. You endured all of that so we would never have to. And may that be at the forefront of our minds, not only on the, the first Sunday of the month, but each and every day, each and every moment. Your sacrifice for us. And not only your sacrifice, but the present fellowship that we have with you. Lord, that you are with us, which gives us hope, which gives us courage which strengthens our hearts to then go and make disciples, to proclaim the message of this gospel to the nations so that others might come to know Christ in faith. And Lord, as we celebrate this, we long for your return. We anticipate it. We can't wait to see you coming in the clouds to rule and reign over your creation. We long to be with you. We long to see you. Lord, we long to see you exalted and lifted up. And we just thank you and praise you that you have united each and every believer here to yourself. If we are all united to you, then we are all united. Lord, I pray that you would build up our church. You are the one who builds your church. May you continue to knit our hearts together in love and in fellowship and in unity so that we might be clearly marked off from the world. It might be evident that we are following Christ, that we are disciples. Lord, may you work in us and through us to bring glory, honor, and praise to your name here in the Treasure Valley and beyond as people return to their homes. Lord, use all of us as salt and light, we ask in the precious and magnificent name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.